Pancho Villa had an exceptional capacity for snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. In December 1914, Villa was the top man in Mexico. He and Emiliano Zapata had ridden into Mexico City and, and forced their rivals, Venustiano Carranza, the first chief of the revolution, and his general, Alvaro Obregón, to flee. And Villa had sat laughing in the presidential chair. Now, Villa didn't want to be president. But it looked like, at that time, that he and, and Zapata were going to determine who was going to be president and on what terms. And it looked like the peasant revolution that they represented had triumphed. But by the second quarter of 1915, it had all fallen apart. In early 1915, Carranza's general, Obregón, had squared off against the triumphant Villa, who looked invincible, but wasn't. There were a lot of contingencies in play, but it really came down to character and temperament. The same audacity that allowed Villa to spit defiance with only eight men at his back, back in 1913, made him overconfident in 1915, when he was the commander of an army of something like 20,000 men with a giant logistical tail and, and camp followers and, and families in tow. Obergon was a canny customer, and he was paying very close attention to the military developments that were occurring in the First World War, which was raging in Europe. And he had German advisors who helped him refine the lessons from the Western Front of the Great War and apply them to the Mexican Civil War. In April of 1915, Obregón provoked Villa into two battles at Celaya in the Laguna country in the center of Mexico. The first engagement was inconclusive. In fact, Villa almost won. The second was an absolutely shattering defeat for Villa and in the biggest battle in the Western Hemisphere since Gettysburg, Obregón just smashed the Division del Norte. Some have argued that the battles of Celaya marked the failure of machismo in the face of interlocking fields of fire. It's a nice phrase, and to some extent it's true. Villa thrived on the offensive, on cavalry charges. He believed that he was born to attack, and he said so. And Oberholm knew this. So attack he did, into machine guns, into flooded cotton fields, and into trenches. And like Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg, he believed that his troops were capable of doing the impossible, and he asked them to do something that was effectively impossible in trying to dislodge Obergon from his defenses at Celaya. They proved not to be so invincible after all. These men were flesh and blood, and they were torn apart 
in a storm of steel. There's a blog simply called The Great War, which recounts the day-to-day unfolding of that conflict um, on its centennial, 1914 to 1918. And in uh, 2015, they uh, produced a very vivid account of the battles, the battles of Salaya. And uh, I'm going to quote extensively from it here. Far away in Europe, widespread aversion to defensive strategy has generals of all armies throwing their men into the fire at alarming rates. An eager student, Obergon, has kept abreast of developments in military science since the outbreak of war, so he understands the inherent advantages enjoyed by entrenched defenders with modern rifles, machine guns, and barbed wire. For two days, Obergon's men use irrigation ditches and natural terrain to construct a death ground for attackers. Abundant barbed wire obstacles are swept by more than 80 machine guns using interlocking zones of fire, with many firing from behind the slope of the ground to strike unseen. Oron also positions his limited artillery out of sight behind 5,000 infantrymen in prepared fighting positions. Unlike other Mexican generals who keep German officers as a kind of pet, Oberon relies heavily on Maximilian Kloss, his German advisor. German defensive doctrine was the most advanced of all the combatants when the war began, so Kloss intuitively understands his commander's intentions. Oberon's aggressive positioning of reserve forces almost gets him into trouble when Villa's forces arrive on the third day. 1,500 of Oberon's Horsemen occupy El Guaje Hacienda in anticipation of cutting off Villa's railroad link. This force is split off from his main cavalry force, 4,500 strong, waiting in reserve on the other side of Celaya. When Villa's main body encounters this divided force, he briefly threatens Obregón with a cavalry defeat in detail. But Obregón has an armored train steamed up, personally riding in it as he fights to rescue his reserve. Losing nearly a thousand men in the first hour of fighting, Obergon nevertheless draws Villa into his intended embrace. Arriving at Salaya in hot pursuit, the Villistas pull up short as soon as the first wave of horse, horses and men are dead and dying on the wire. Again, a very vivid account. And it was, on that first day of Salaya, a near-run thing. Villa's highly capable artillery commander and military advisor, Felipe Ángeles, urged Villa to pull back to make a strategic withdrawal into the state of Chihuahua, their home ground, and force Oberon to extend his supply lines in pursuit and draw him into a defensive battle. Pancho Villa wasn't having any of that. Obregón had read his man very well. In fact, Villa was angered at Ángeles and uh, told him that his, his thinking was crooked. Villa couldn't abide even a strategic withdrawal that could be, dis- could be seen as a defeat by the perfumed one, as he called Obregón. So he doubled down. The Great War again. Villa throws his army at Oberon almost 40 times over two days. 
While he has artillery, it is never a factor, for Via never masses his guns to destroy defenses, and his ammunition supply contains many duds. Over a thousand horses and at least as many men are dead when his men finally achieve what seems to be a breakthrough, claiming a field Oberon's men have flooded. Seeing an opportunity, Oberon has his bugler sound a retreat call. Confusing the signal for one of their own, the Vilistas begin to withdraw. It is the moment Oberon has waited for. He orders an immediate counterattack, simultaneously sending his redivided cavalry force at both of Via's flanks. Low on ammunition, Via's army breaks, abandoning a camp full of supplies and ammunition along with many wounded. Obergon takes thousands of prisoners. Rather than accept defeat, Via blames material shortages, raises supplies and reinforcements, and prepares to attack again. On April 13th, Via tries the same tactics a second time, bombarding the town of Salaya to little military effect. Once again, Obergon whose men have expanded their wire, flooded more fields, and added even more machine guns, waits for the right moment before launching his well-hidden reserve force on the second day of the second battle, routing Villa's army a second time decisively. During the battle, Oberon's political ally, Carranza, is able to resupply him with a trainload of ammunition, men, and weapons. And Raul Villa is forced to flee again. He has lost perhaps 4,000 killed and 8,000 captured over two weeks. His mystique of invulnerability is forever dispelled like a mirage. It should be noted, too, that uh, Obergon rounded up and corralled a whole bunch of at least of prisoners and machine gunned them. So uh, his brutality was no less than Villa's ever was, but um, his military sophistication was greater, and that did prove decisive. It has to be understood, though, that Villa's failure at Salaya wasn't really all that different from the British failure at the Somme or the Germans at Verdun. Tactics for attack had not evolved a solution for the sheer potency of prepared defensive positions, trenches, barbed wire, and firepower. Attacks could break into a defended line, which Via showed at Salaya and the British at the Somme. But they couldn't hold in the face of a counterattack. They would spend their force, and a counterattack would slaughter them. Via limped away, only to be goaded into another battle at the city of Leon. That battle lasted a biblical 40 days and very closely replicated the hellishness of the Western Front. And again, Villa was defeated. It was all downhill from there. The general rallied the remnants of his command and marched across the Sierra Madre into Sonora, hoping to change his fortunes by taking the Carancista garrison at the border town of Agua Prieta. But by this time, the United States had decided to recognize Carranza's government, and they allowed transport of Carancista reinforcements across U.S. territory. 
And when VIA launched a night attack on the city's defenses, searchlights powered by electricity run across the border from the U.S., lit up the desert, and spotlighted VIA's men. And again, they were just mowed down in droves. After a last fight deeper in Sonora, VIA had no choice. He disbanded the tattered remains of the Division del Norte, and with a handful of loyal followers, he disappeared into the Sierra. As he did so, he was nursing a profound rage at the United States and at President Wilson personally, whom he believed had betrayed him. You see, Villa had always preserved U.S. interests and protected U.S. property. He had really good relationships with some American officers and, uh, and some businessmen, and he was particularly friends with General Hugh Scott. So from his perspective, he could not understand why they had turned on him, why the Americans had turned on him, especially in favor of, of the hated, bearded one, Carranza. Via, abandoned at heart, he had a big streak of paranoia in his personality, and betrayal at any level really stoked that paranoia, and it drove him literally crazy. He discovered that his old compañero, Tomas Urbina, had not only failed to rally to him at Celaya, but had also absconded to a fortified hacienda with a hoard of revolutionary gold. And Villa went practically berserk with fury. He and a picked force descended on Urbina's hideout and slaughtered all of his followers. Villa might have been in a rage, and he might have been full of paranoia. He was also sentimental, and he just could not make the call to execute his old friend, his companion of, of, uh, of mountain days that predated the revolution. He sent him toward Chihuahua City for medical treatment for the wounds that he had suffered in the assault. Villa's fearsome enforcer, Rodolfo Fierro, shot him to pieces en route. So, first old Tomas, now the Americans. Villa was beside himself with frustration, humiliation, and rage. And come March of 1916, he would give vent to that rage in spectacular fashion. His target was a sleepy American border town called Columbus, New Mexico. So here we have a General Francisco Villa whose rage has left him virtually unhinged. By the end of 1915, his Division del Norte had been swept away in a tide of blood, and his command had been reduced down to a hard core of loyalists and a ragtag cadre of men and boys that they had to conscript at the muzzle of a gun. Villa blamed the United States, which had recognized his hated rival, Venustiano Carranza's faction, as the legitimate of government of Mexico, and 
had materially assisted the Carrancistas in defeating the Division del Norte at the border city of Agua Prieta. So the bandit in Villa knew only one way to quench this fury. He was going to get revenge. In January of 1916, a troop of Villistas led by the fanatically loyal Colonel Pablo Lopez stopped a train near Santa Isabel, southwest of Chihuahua City, and aboard was a contingent of Americans, mostly mining engineers, who were on their way to reopen a silver mine that had closed down during the peak of the Civil War. Carranza had told the Americans that the situation in Chihuahua was under control, that... uh, there was good security and that American businesses could reopen. And he was wrong. So Lopez's force stopped the train and Lopez personally ordered the Americans off the train, cursing and taunting them and telling them they they ought to ask U.S. President Woodrow Wilson for help or perhaps appeal to Carranza for protection. He had them lined up on the tracks and then detailed a couple of young releasedas to shoot them down with their Mausers. It was a brutal scene that was recalled by a Mexican who was on the train. The Americans lay on the ground, gasping and writhing in the sand and cinders. The suffering of the Americans seemed to drive the bandits into a frenzy. Viva Villa, they cried, and death to the gringos. Colonel Lopez ordered the mercy shot given to those who were still alive, and the soldiers placed the end of their rifles at their victims' heads and fired, putting the wounded out of their misery. In total, 18 Americans were killed in what can only be described as a a terrorist attack. The Wilson administration didn't act, reluctant to get embroiled in a confrontation with Mexico while the possibility existed that the U.S. would be pulled into the Great War in Europe. But within a couple of months, Villa would force Wilson's hand. In the deep dark of the morning of March 9th, 1916, Villa and about 485 men slipped across the border and infiltrated the small burg of Columbus, New Mexico. It's never been determined with complete certainty why Villa chose to attack Columbus. Maybe thought he could hijack arms from the U.S. forces stationed at Camp Furlong, which was right there near the town. The prospect of loot was certainly enticing to this wretched little army that he led. There's been some belief that he wanted revenge on a merchant named Sam Ravel who may have double-crossed him on an arms deal, but witnesses say that Villistas searched for Ravel and and were asking about him by name and briefly took his younger younger brother Arthur hostage, but it uh, it's never really been determined what kind of arms deal he, he might have had with him, and uh, And it seems like that's an awful lot to motivate a full-scale attack on the town. There are other theories that German agents provocateur goaded 
via into an attack in order to get the U.S. tied down in Mexico. And there's absolutely no doubt that that was a strategic aim of the Germans. But they seem to be putting their bets on Carranza at this point in the war, and there's just no convincing evidence that the Columbus raid was part of a German plot. Probably the most accurate explanation is the straightforward one, which is the one that Jeff Gwynn goes with in his book, War on the Border. Via just wanted to kill some Americans and provoke the United States into an invasion that would send patriotic Mexicans flocking to his tattered banner. Via hoped that provoking a U.S. invasion would restore his standing among the Mexican people, that he would be, again, a hero, a defiant warrior standing up against the Colossus of the North. And, as such, he might be able to recruit men more readily, restoring his forces to a higher level of capability. An American pursuit would also put Carranza in a difficult position. He would either have to resist the invasion, which would take the pressure off Villa, or be seen as a toady of the Americans. Whatever its strategic purpose was, the attack on Columbus was, from a tactical standpoint, a pretty dismal failure. Ten civilians were killed, and eight soldiers from Camp Furlong died, repelling the attack. The defenders killed 67 Villistas in town, mostly after Lieutenant John Lucas and his men set up four French light machine guns and hosed down the streets, which were beautifully lit up by fires that had been set by the rampaging Villistas. So the Americans tore them up with about 20,000 rounds of 30-06 ammunition. Another hundred or so Villistas were killed when the fire-eating Colonel Frank Tompkins pursued the retreating Villistas into Mexico. Now faced with an attack on U.S. soil, President Wilson had really no choice other than to retaliate. It has to be remembered that the U.S. Army at this time was very small, um, especially compared to European armies, and uh, Wilson sent a big proportion of it, about a quarter of the entire United States Army at the time, under General John J. Pershing, as a punitive expedition into Mexico to capture or kill Pancho Villa. And as with later strategic manhunts, the effort to track down an elusive enemy on his home ground proved very difficult, and in this case futile. Despite very hard campaigning and some close calls and occasional skirmish that added to the Villista body count, the cavalry never really caught up with Pancho Villa. And despite Carranza's grudging acceptance of their presence in Mexico, U.S. troops got no cooperation and a lot of hindrance from the Carrancista military officers. In fact, the biggest battle in the whole campaign was a nasty scrap at the city of Carrizal between American forces and Carrancista troops, which 
almost touched off a shooting war with Mexico, which, of course, had the Germans licking their chops. But neither the Americans nor Carranza wanted a war. The only people that wanted a war were the Kaiser's men. So tensions were deliberately ratcheted down. The punitive expedition pulled back and finally out of Mexico at the beginning of 1917, which was just in time for the U.S. to declare war on Germany and send Pershing over there at the head of the American Expeditionary Force. It's worth noting that the Mexican situation played a critical role in the U.S. intervention in the Great War um, after the Zimmerman telegram was revealed in which uh, the Germans offered Mexico the return of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona as part of a, uh, an alliance in which uh, Mexico would attack the United States and, and tie down the Americans. So the Germans had serious interest in provoking uh, Mexican conflict with the United States, but it, it never quite came off. But just um, the realization that, that that attempt was made was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and led to the American declaration of war against Imperial Germany. The punitive expedition was just kind of declared a success, sort of. Um, Benjamin Runkle, in his excellent book, Wanted, Dead or Alive, Manhunts from Geronimo to Osama bin Laden, wrote, Despite the failure to kill or capture Villa, he was never again a serious threat to the security of the U.S. border states. Pershing succeeded in scattering Villa's forces, killing 203, wounding 108, capturing 19 of the 485 Villistas who had attacked Columbus. Even when Villa reappeared at the head of a reconstituted army in the fall of 1916, he never dared to approach U.S. forces nor to attack Americans in Mexico, despite his bellicose threats. Well, yes, maybe. Via did come roaring back to life, and that was aided in no small part by Mexican resentment of the Yankee invaders. For a while, Via's revolutionary star was on the ascendant again. He was hard to keep down. He was an excellent guerrilla commander and willing to suffer to stay in the fight. He had uh, taken a bad leg wound in a skirmish with Carancista forces, um, perhaps fragged by one of his own men, um, almost lost his leg, almost died. Um, his men hid him in a cave until he, he recovered. So, you know, Pancho Villa was, was whatever else you might say about him. He, he was a tough man, and he stayed in the fight. And, as I say, his forces controlled most of the Chihuahua countryside, and he was still able to occasionally mount successful attacks on urban centers. 
he got into a really savage war of reprisals with Carnesista General Pancho the Rope Murguia, who was notorious for dangling captured villistas from the trees lining the avenues of Chihuahua City. And Villa was no less savage. Um, this is a period of real moral decline in Villa's personality, and, and he tolerated and even encouraged acts that um, he would have had troops executed for in the glory days of the Division del Norte. When citizens of the town of Namaquipa, which was once loyal to Villa, betrayed the location of an arms cache, Villa retaliated by allowing his fighters to engage in a mass rape of the town's women. And that, again, is something that he would never have countenanced when he was commander of the Division del Norte. Gradually, though, Villa's near-mad rage kind of burned itself out. By 1920, Obregón and Carranza had fallen out, and Obregón had had Carranza turned out of power and then murdered. So with the bearded one who... Via truly hated, out of the picture, he was willing to cut a deal. And he negotiated with a federal politician named Adolfo de la Huerta, uh, ironically, named very similarly to the dictator that he'd thrown out of power. And in those negotiations, he was granted a, a hacienda called Canetillo in the state of Durango. And uh, he was given as part of... of that arrangement, a substantial private bodyguard for his own security. And a much mellower Pancho Villa really enjoyed developing a state-of-the-art agricultural colony and spending time with his many children from his many wives. In fact, the biggest conflict in his life in this period was between and among his wives and mistresses which drove the bandit chieftain nearly crazy. Old Emnides finally caught up to him, and driving back to Canetillo from a wedding in the city of Peral, Villa was ambushed and shot full of holes, along with several members of his personal staff. We're about to mark the centennial of the Villa hit. That's on July 20th. And we'll take that up in the next episode of the Frontier Partisans podcast. As always, I wish to thank the patrons who keep the Frontier Partisans podcast and the blog going. That's Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfeger. So yes, we are coming up upon the 100th anniversary of the assassination of Pancho Villa, which is a very dramatic tale in and of itself and, and well worth the, uh, the independent episode. 
and uh, that will uh, be posted on that 100th anniversary on July 20th and uh, looking forward to getting that out there in front of you and we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>